Father, from the great gifts that you've given us, we give back to you this small portion. And we pray that you would use these funds, Lord God, to increase your kingdom here and around the world. And we thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So we've been going through some of the heavy themes of theology. Last week we were in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go back and turn there for a minute just to bring these things back to our minds and in Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 1 the apostle Paul writes and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this week's text is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 46. Chapter 46. And we'll start from verse 5. This is God speaking to his people. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver on the scales, hire a goldsmith and make it into a god. Then they fall down and they worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and they carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there, but it cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this, stand firm and bring it to mind. You transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times what is not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Now, the theme that we're on today is the eternality of God, the unchanging nature of God, that he never had a beginning and he never has an end, but also in this, that he knows all things. One of the homeschool classes we're teaching is logic and critical reasoning, which doesn't sound attractive, especially to young kids. They kind of come in there going, why am I even here? And we start to teach them 
about logic. And one of the first things we do is get them to actually apprehend the fact that there are eternal, unchanging truths that they didn't have anything to do with, right? Like we all kind of believe in a beginning to the universe now, right? During the 1930s, 1940s, even up into the 1950s, people were kind of debating whether or not the universe was eternal or it had a beginning. But now almost everyone everywhere agrees with the Christian premise that even the universe itself had a beginning. It wasn't always. There wasn't always time, space, matter, the way that we see things now. Before that, nobody really knows. Well, we kind of know, but they don't know, right? they got a few ideas, but it all had a beginning. But before that, what was there? But here's the thing. Things like the laws of logic and mathematics, that one plus one is equal to two, these are ideas in our mind. They don't really exist out here anyway. But we can't really function in our lives without using eternal, unchanging laws that are true whether or not the universe even exists. They are eternal. They are unchanging. They're the rules of life, but they're not dependent on us at all. We're kind of saddled with them at the beginning, like eternal, unchanging truths. And we just have to live with them, right? First law of logic is that A is A, the law of identity. Everything that is itself is itself. The second is that everything is either itself or not itself. And the next one is nothing can both be itself and something else at the same time and in the, and in the same relationship. The law of non-contradiction. I'm already seeing the eyes. Like, where is he going with this? It is important, especially as young as possible, that we start to understand that there are eternal, unchanging truths that are not dependent upon our emotion, upon our feeling, upon our condition, or our station in life. Let's take a little look at John chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 1 is the first page of the Gospel of John, written by the Apostle John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was the light of life, and the light life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, that word that we translate word, which doesn't make a lot of sense, really, is logos, which is the ancient term that we used for logic, understanding, reason. And it says that even in the beginning was the word referring to Jesus Christ, saying that he's the eternal, unchanging logic and reason of God. Here's one of the reasons that we go into this. First of all, everybody has to make some account for the rationality of the universe, if the universe was completely chaotic and made no sense whatsoever, it would really be pretty easy. You wouldn't have to make account of it. But we actually have to make account of truth and right and wrong and good and evil and all of these things. And whatever our understanding of ourselves and our place in the world is, that all has to make sense. I would say there's only one worldview or one way of thinking about ourselves and the universe that actually accounts for all of our human experiences. And that's within the Christian faith. But we also get to God, and a lot of people say interesting things about God. It's common to hear people, in the, just in common culture these days, say, maybe God doesn't know everything. Maybe he's just really smart, like Yoda, right? Maybe he's just been around a long time. Maybe he had a beginning, and he's just thinking about things. Maybe God only knows the future, as it talked about in that verse, because he's figured it all out. But then we get to the fact that there has to be something that is eternal, 
and unchanging. And we talk about eternal, unchanging ideas like the laws of logic and mathematics. Where do those exist if not as a feature of the physical universe? Well, the answer of the great philosophers and even of the great thinkers and even here in the Christian faith is in an eternal, unchanging mind. Like when you experience yourself and your own being and your own rationality and your sentience and the fact that you're alive and that you think, right? Maybe you would think to yourself, the physical aspects of the universe are all changing and things like that, but how do you account for your own sentience? Like, I know we, we build these great things like the Hubble Take Space Telescope, and we look out at the entire universe, and we can see all of the galaxies and the stars, and now, you know, this one great scientist made this funny statement the other day that really struck me. He said, I think there might be more galaxies out there than there are stars, and I just thought that was weird. But when we look out there and we see all these things, one thing that we don't see is anything like us. Now, I know people postulate, well, it's probably out there somewhere. Well, don't you think there'd be some clues? Even on the earth, we look all over the earth and at all the things God made from whales down to spiders. And there's nothing like us that manifests the image of God in such a way as that it can see the difference between good and evil and true and false. Even if you take your dog, right? If you offer your dog a steak and a pineapple, how many times is it going to choose the pineapple? Like one out of a hundred? One out of a thousand? But that's just brute instinct, right? It's not really reasoning between the difference. It's just made to like steak. Your dog that you love so much that sits on your lap was made to be a killer. <laughs> Even the little ones would take down an elk if they had the opportunity, right? <laughs> Wouldn't they do that? So all of this stuff that we're talking about primes us for, the, for a conversation that was incredibly important to the early church. And so it was incredibly important to the Reformation. We remember that in the Reformation, about 500 years ago, they were dealing with huge questions of what is going to be the basis for society. How are we going to know who and what we are? All of a sudden, the new learning came in with the Renaissance, right? And they went back and they read the forbidden books. There were a few major forbidden books that was illegal to own and read on your own. One was Aristotle. Another was Plato. Another was the Holy Bible. Illegal on the index of forbidden books. And they went back and they read the things for themselves because some smart aleck invented the printing press, right? All of a sudden, a normal guy that made normal money that worked for a living could actually read some stuff. And so they did, because they did not have cable TV. In this, <clears throat> this explosion of learning, people thought to themselves, what if the Roman Catholic Church is actually wrong about a few things? Now, I know most of you here, and you would probably say, yeah, they're wrong about more than a few, but that's not the point, right? that the entire basis for civilization and society came up and it, was un, and it was up for grabs. So they started to rethink things in terms of the sciences and learning and understanding and the humanities began to flourish again and great art came from the great people that we think of when we think about art. People like Leonardo da Vinci and people like Michelangelo were writing at the same time as Martin Luther. It's not hard to do the math, right? As these things progressed, Rereading the Bible, they reanalyzed the things that they thought about truth and knowledge and where they get their sense of right and wrong. But it happened before that, too. 
A thousand years earlier, a little boy named Augustine was born. Any of you remember Augustine from your studies? Who is the most influential Christian that ever lived other than a writer of the Bible? Augustine. He was born to a Christian mother and a pagan father in 354 AD, but he was trained to be a pagan. So he studied the philosophers, he studied Plato, he studied Aristotle, he studied all of the pagan religions, and he was devoutly pagan and anti-Christian. He was so good at it that eventually, when he became a lawyer, the emperor of the Roman Empire hired him to go out and refute Christianity. He was like on tour. And eventually he ended up at a church where there was a pastor named Ambrose. And hearing Ambrose's teaching, he would write refutations of everything that Ambrose would say in the sermon, and they would publish it and hand it out to the public. His job was to answer Christianity. He was an apologist for the devil, basically. <laughs> and as he's doing this, he keeps listening, and he keeps listening, and he keeps finding contradictions in his own religion and in his own philosophy that are answered by the Christian faith. Things like, how did the universe get here instead of not being here? Why is there truth? How do we exist? What are we at the end of the day? Why does man seem to have this uncanny capacity to think the very thoughts of God when we know the gods are on Olympus and we're only mortals? And he starts to hear things like we are created in the image and likeness of God and that every human being has value before God. And it starts to infect his thinking with this Christianness that just starts bleeding in there, right? He starts to understand things that he couldn't have understood from any other way than if God himself told him these truths. So eventually, you remember the story about Augustine's mother, right? One of the most important people in the story is Augustine's mother, who used to pray for him constantly, and she would constantly go to her son and read him the scriptures. He was about 30 years old at the time and had become a famous and important man in the empire. And she goes to Ambrose on the steps of the church and she grabs him by the robe and she's weeping. And he asks her, what's the matter? And she says, you need to save my son. You need to save his soul. And Ambrose says to her, only God can save a soul. And she comes to him week after week after week. And finally, I think he just got sick of it. He says to her, woman, a child of so many tears could never be lost to God. Her name was Monica. They, they call her Saint Monica. In California, we call her Santa Monica, right? A city that's named after her today. But she was an amazing woman of faith. And what she's become in the church is kind of the representative of mothers who never give up on their children. But eventually there was this time when Augustine, he was overwhelmed with doubt. Doubt about God. Not the real God, doubt about his God, right? And doubt about truth and doubt about science and doubt about learning. And he hears a voice from far away saying, tolo lege, tolo lege. It was a child's voice. He didn't really know what it was saying, but it said, take and read, take and read. He didn't know what it meant, but he was holding a Bible in his hand and he took it and he really read it for the first time. And to his horror and disgust, by the time he was done reading it for the first time, he swore he was a Christian. And of course, it destroyed his life. He didn't have a wife. He had concubines. He had children with them. He had money. He had position. He had power. And all of it was washed away the moment that he decided that he was a Christian. He goes on to write some very influential books. 
The most influential book outside of the Bible itself in human history is The City of God by Augustine. But another one that he wrote is called The Confessions. How many of you have had a chance to read Confessions? Uh, Here's the thing. This is kind of a blacked out book. It's really hard to find. The second most read book in the history of the world other than the Bible is The Confessions of Augustine and it's really hard to find it in any bookstore. But that's because of its power. I would encourage all of you to give it at least one read where he writes this book about how he was converted. In chapter one, he says this. Great you are, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is thy power and thy wisdom infinite. And thee would man praise, man but a particle of thy creation, man that bears about him his mortality and the witness of his sin, the witness that thou resisted the proud, yet would man praise thee, he but a particle of thy creation. Thou awakest us to delight in praise, and thou madest for thyself, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. Grant me, Lord, to know and understand which is first, which is first, to call upon thee or to praise thee, and again, to know thee or to call on thee. For who can call on thee without knowing thee? For he that knoweth thee not may call on thee as other than thou art. Or is it rather that we call on thee that we may know thee? But how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Or how shall they believe without a preacher? And they that seek the Lord shall praise him. For they that seek him always find him. And they that find him, they praise him. I will seek thee, Lord, by calling on thee, and will call on thee, believing in thee. For to us hast thou been preached. My faith, Lord, shall call on thee, which thou hast given me, wherewith thou hast inspired me through the incarnation of thy Son, and the ministry of the word. So those were his first thoughts about God. Do I first have to know God so that I can praise him, or do I have to praise him to know him? Do I have to believe in order to understand, or do I have to understand in order to believe? This is a classic issue which is still before the church today, and it's related to this other issue that came up. After Augustine had written many of his great works, there was a monk in England. Augustine was an African, writing in Hippo, Africa, And at that time, after he had written his books, there was a monk named Pelagius. And Pelagius was a monk in England. And if you think about England at the time, that was considered like the edge of the world. Nothing good could ever come from England in 350 AD. And one of the lines he wrote was, Lord, in regard to my behavior, command whatever you will, but I pray thee, grant what you command. Think about that for a second. Command whatever you will, but I pray that you would grant what you command. And Pelagius was very upset about this. He started to write books against it. He said, God would never command something that you don't have the ability to do. You don't have to have God grant you the ability to do the things that he tells you to do. God would be wrong if he didn't actually give us the ability to actually carry out his law perfectly. And then he said this. He said, this idea that's been in the church from the beginning, that Augustine keeps writing about, about original sin and that people come into the world already sinful and in need of grace. Pelagius called it heresy. There are still two great traditions in the church that bounce back and forth between these two, and this particular church, being a historic church hundreds of years old, is of one of them. 
And basically, we follow Augustine and not Pelagius on this course. One of the things that Augustine wrote to him at that time is, universally and everywhere, all children born to Christians are baptized into the Christian faith. Why would infants be baptized if they did not have a sinful nature? And people were like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, right? Why would they be baptized if they didn't have a sinful nature? And then he started to argue from Scripture that we come into the world broken and lost and are in need of the grace of God. We don't come into the world like Adam, sinless, and then fall through hysterics or contradictions or foolish behavior. Men are lost and in need of the grace of God. Men are not found and then in need of a pep talk. Still today in the churches, you can see the distinction between these two sides. One says that salvation is all of grace, and the other says salvation is mostly works. Now, Pelagius also said, well, we do need grace, but the grace that God gives is just enough grace to make you able to save yourself. Have you ever heard that before? Believe me, that's the first gospel I ever learned. Grace is to give you the ability to do things for yourself that God would have you do. But the scriptures teach much more definitively on this that grace is the need of the soul, that not one of us can save ourselves, that all of us are broken, all of us are dead, all of us are too weary for the journey, and God reaches out to us, and he fills us with not only grace, but the energy to be alive again. He saves us by making us born again. You remember earlier when we read those verses from Ephesians where it talked about us being dead, and he made us alive again. Historically, at this point, Augustine won the entire argument. Already in 510 AD, the entire church had all, excuse me, 410 AD, he had already won over the entire church so that the church came together and had a council specifically against Pelagius. Pelagianism, for the next thousand years, is considered a heresy in the Christian church. And at the time of the Reformation, the reformers said, we still agree with Augustine. We still agree that we're saved by the grace of God alone and not by anything good in ourselves. And that was the rift between the Roman Catholic and the Protestant churches. At that point, many of the Roman Catholic scholars bit the bullet and said, no, we're mostly Pelagian. The argument that we're going to decide this just by scripture is because many of the Roman Catholic scholars were able to go back and say, hey, we've got some church doctors that agree with us. And the reformers stood up and said, well, we've got a Bible that agrees with us. Everybody's got to choose. Everybody's got to choose whether it's going to be philosophy and the ideas of men or scripture and the ideas of God, right? Let's take a look at Romans chapter 8. One of the major portions of scripture that were applied in this is from the book of Romans. We'll go from verse 9 of chapter 8 of Romans. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now here's where we start to get to the point. I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation, he goes all the way back to the nature of the creation itself. For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when the Apostle Paul describes it, he calls it a bondage, and a general bondage not only of humankind, but the entire creation itself being fallen into sin and covered by it. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And then this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now I know this is heavy theology, but it gets to the eternality of God. One of the things that we assume about God and that's taught in Scripture is God never really learned anything. God's knowledge of you is not dependent on what you do. He's not sitting around waiting to see how things will turn out. From the very beginning, he knew what he was creating, and he had an end and a purpose in it. And so God knew you before you existed. He knew you as you are now. He knows you infinitely well. He knows your thoughts and your ideas and your proclivities better than you do. And so before God created the universe... He already had you in mind. He loved you before he created anything, and he created you for the purpose of loving you. This is where it starts to get amazing. God's love for you now was planned in eternity past before anything did exist. He knew you. He knew your name. He ordained that he would bring you into existence from nothing. He spoke into existence a universe from nothing by his own all-powerful word so that now 
You would love him and he would love you. You were not his child until the day you believed, but he decided you were going to be his child before you even existed. And then he answers all of our other questions on that matter with this next verse. Because if you ever think to yourself, yeah, but maybe I can ruin it. Maybe God's love and his eternal design and his purpose and his power are not sufficient to save me. What shall we say? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Think about that for a minute. I don't want it to become bumper sticker theology. I know it's a great verse, but memorize it and think about it. If God's for you, who can be against you? And think about the enormity of that because there is no one and nothing in this universe that can be against you if indeed God is for you. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died and more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see why he says nothing can separate it? Because it was his decision, not yours. Before anything came into being, he already knew you completely. And he had you in his mind as the apple of his eye and as a loved object of his affection that he would save you and bring you to salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, our God and Father, we thank you that you save your children completely, that you would never abandon one of your little ones, Lord God, to death. We thank you, Lord God, for your grace and your mercy and pray that it encourages us to live a life worthy of that conviction. We thank you for all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.